Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The retailers uh, coming in with some numbers here today. Uh, Target, TJ Maxx, we got Walmart tomorrow. Uh, let's, let's round table this thing with some smart folks. Jen Bartash, a senior industry analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. And Bloomberg News, uh, Jen uh, joins us uh, via uh, the uh, cam from the Princeton office of Bloomberg Intelligence. And then we got Simone Foxman. She is a Bloomberg reporter for Bloomberg Television uh, joining us here in studio. Uh, Jen Bartash, let's start with you. Uh, TGT, Target, stocks up over 5%. The market... What is it like here out of the Target uh, results? Well, when we look at Target, you know, the, what the market likes is that margin is up um, and it's up significantly over last year. Um, at the same time, I think everyone re recognizes that it's a difficult operating environment. And so even though Target reduced its full year guidance for sales and for profit, um, I think that people are encouraged by the, the, the way that margins are responding even in that environment. All right, so Jen, just for our, our, our viewers on uh, YouTube, I want to point out that you have what is probably the best quote-unquote office in Bloomberg. It is a kind of a corner office. Now, no one, I mean no one at Bloomberg has offices. We all sit at our desks uh, in kind of the bullpen style, but Jen has got about as close as you can get to a corner office. So I just want to point that out. It's and that is because <laughs> she's been running the Princeton office for decades. I mean, she's basically uh, the leader down there. So we were able to bring her to BI. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, all right, Simone. Teach, uh, Simone teach Foxman sits near a window. She does sit near a window. <laughs> I also sit near the great Michael McKee, who's a frequent uh, Bloomberg radio <laughs> guest. It, it, but uh, exactly. I, I once had my own office because I I was the only correspondent in the country. So nice. that, that's but anyway, but Qatar. You, but yes, but yes. you want to hear about uh, retail in the United States. Yes. So what do you got here on our good friends at TJ Maxx? Yeah, I mean, beaten a raise, okay. really, right across the board, um, raising their outlook for the year, seeing comparable sales, three to four percent. I mean, the idea of value is attracting customers. They're seeing increased traffic across all their major brands, according to the CEO there. Um, even home goods, that was not expected to do quite so well. Uh, comp sales there were expected to be slightly in the negative, but we saw 4% uh, year on year rise. So even though uh, consumers are looking away from their homes, they've spent so much time there, they've invested there during the pandemic and they are moving on, uh, home goods is still able to attract people. So a broadly very positive earnings report for uh, TJX, though I will say shares 
3.6% higher, not the 5 plus that All we're seeing in time high for TJX. I will point that That's out. That's true. All time high for the stock. I well, I mean, are people stepping down? Are we starting to see that? Jen, um, you know, for a long time we've been hearing uh, guests come in the studio and tell Paul and me that um, people step down from Target to Walmart. Are they stepping down from Target to TJX? Well, I think across the board, you're talking about what we consider to be a flight to value. Um, and so regardless of where your household income level lies, uh, people are increasingly seeking value. And that's one of the things that makes TJX such a, a great opportunity for people in that it's there's something always new. They go in there. It's treasure hunt. Um, uh, and if you're talking about the Walmarts and the targets of the world, you're seeing consumers shift into areas where they think there is value. So there are some shoppers who have moved from Target to Walmart, um, especially when you're talking about essentials, um, where Walmart's prices are just generally very, very sharp. But we're also seeing people move from Walmart down to dollar stores. Um, so it's really that progression of the flight to value um, that is really describing the current economic environment and the consumer environment that we're seeing. And, and I think when you think about it, too, you know, the area we've heard um, folks across the consumer space be really negative is those um, middle income consumers mm -hmm. who want to cut their discretionary spending. And TJX offers a bit more of that discretionary spend. So instead of going to the top line retailer, you have people um, going out and saying, I want to do that treasure hunting. I think that that is a better use of my wallet uh, than just simply going to a store where, where, the kind of, where I don't have to do that, right. but I'm also going to pay. And Simone, I noticed you know, kind of what was unusual for TJ Maxx here is, OK, they beat the quarter. And, 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 uh, but unlike Target, who was cautious in their outlook, um, they boosted, TJ Maxx boosted their outlook here. So what's yeah, kind of the driver there? Yeah, extremely strong commentary saying really? that they're off to uh, an incredible, uh, a very strong right. start, I believe is word for word uh, in the third quarter. So I think everyone very optimistic there that this flight to value, uh, um, as Jennifer was talking about, will continue. Uh, even if, even if uh, a recovery to some degree materializes in the way that Target has been, I guess, hoping and praying for on their call. Jen, what do you hear about um, the excess savings? I heard someone this morning, uh, I think Carl Riccadonna on Bloomberg Surveillance Oop. say that uh, Carl, Carl Riccadonna <laughs> over at BNP Paribas saying that um, at least like, you know, there's been a debate about whether or not Americans still have excess savings left. But he says one thing is for sure that the lower, let's say, three quintiles um, have already blown through it and have nothing left. Yeah, I, that's that's what we're seeing too. And there's you know growing use of credit card debt or credit cards and debt is, is a little bit on the rise, especially for those um, those um, quintiles that he was talking about. Um, and and so those consumers are really looking for where to spend that money. And I think one of the other things to think about is that the retailers in general haven't they still haven't gone back to pre-pandemic days of promotions um, and the same types of levels of sales and discounts. Um, and so although they're offering value, um, that type of sales environment or promotional environment hasn't yet come back. Now that may be on the horizon um, if things don't change soon, but I think it also supports why we're seeing the popularity of things like TJX. Um, because people aren't getting those sales at the big box retailers um, or some of the other retailers at the moment. And so they're looking for where they can find some of those key brands, but at a much lower cost. Simone, um, what else are you looking at here in, in the re retail space um, as we get some of these companies reporting earnings? 
Yeah, I mean, tomorrow we have Walmart. That's the big dog there. Yep. Um, I think shares hit an all-time high earlier this week. Uh, and so I think expectations are very high that they can do, um, they can benefit from this environment in a similar way to perhaps TJ Maxx is that consumers are trading down. Um, they're doing more of their spending at Walmart. Walmart Plus growing an increasing number of subscribers uh, that are using its food businesses and that sort of thing. So that'll be an interesting uh, data point to watch. I'm also interested, you know, we heard from Target this morning about the impact of uh, student loan repayments kicking yes, back up. Right, right. Uh, do we hear that from TJ Maxx? They have yet to have their call. Do we hear that from Walmart? It's We're just trying to get a sense of how much this is actually going to weigh on consumers as we head, it, head towards the fall and then, of course, head towards the holiday season. You ever been to TJ Maxx, Paul? Probably, but it's, I, I have to long. say, I haven't been there in a while, but when I, when I would go, and it's still if I would go today, um, Jen is right, uh, or I don't know who said that about hunting for, like, it is an adventure to go in there because <laughs> there's so much stuff, and you know you're going to find, like, like, three cool polo shirts for $29.99 <laughs> that you would normally pay, like, I don't know, 100 bucks for, so... I think that's how you can like make sense of it, right? Yeah. You know, when I was younger, yeah. I loved doing that so much more. Uh, and I think if my if, thanks Bloomberg for paying me, but I think if my <laughs> pennies were tighter, I would uh, I would worry a little bit more about where each dollar was going, uh, and therefore I would feel like okay, I've done my, I've put in the hard work to go and buy this handbag. Um, even though you know my dimes are tight, whereas, but my point is, it's not whereas even hard Walmart, work. Whereas, whereas <laughs> I guess you go to Target, it's much yeah. everything's much more laid out for you. I mean, my point is, it's, it's actually a great way to spend uh, an hour or two in the city, like like going to a Barnes and Noble and just <laughs> oh hanging out. You know? This is why you come. This to This is New the York great city. Matt Miller. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, I used to do that. How All right, far so. you fallen? Jen Bartash, senior industry analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence, and Simone Foxman uh, from Bloomberg. Uh, she's a reporter there, joining us, talking us about all things retail trading us. Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Jackson Hole, I am still searching my inbox for the invite, Matt. And I'm just, I know it's there. I just can't find it. But I don't know if that's going to be a big deal anyway. I heard they uh, disinvited a lot of people. Like, remember when the Soho House uh, canceled all the bankers' memberships? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's that Jackson it. Hole did the same thing a couple years ago. All right, let's bring in uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and chief strategist at QI Research. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio and on YouTube. So that's even better. Danielle, uh, I guess the narrative now with our Federal Reserve and with rates is, 
you know, not how higher they go, but it could be how long are we going to stay here? How are you viewing that part of the narrative? So I think the higher for longer narrative is something that markets do not want to accept. But we have to bear in mind that Jay Powell started in January of 2022, kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi. It, this will happen. This mm -hmm. will happen. This will happen. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> and, and so he's managed to, to, to really extend this narrative. And I think that, you know, if, if you look at what a lot of people are starting to believe compared to 12 months ago, now they're saying we might not see quantitative tightening stop until the fourth quarter of 2024. That is a form of higher for longer, even if we see rate cuts in 2024. All right. A very smart uh, listener of ours kind of wrote in and asked about that. The relationship between running off the balance sheet and interest rates. You made a comment the last time you were here about that. What did you mean by that, that relationship? So, I mean, we are a nation that exists. Liquidity is the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. It's 70% consumption, but so much of business investment, so much of consumption is derived from credit. And when you're pulling liquidity from the system, you end up seeing things like the New York Fed's uh, work that shows that that companies anticipate rejections being at the highest levels on record in the next 12 months when it comes to credit card, home loan, um, auto loans, and what have you. So that is a reflection of a credit crunch, which I've learned is, some, is a term that, that showed up in 1966. Oh, it was okay. Two guys from Solomon Brothers <laughs> created the term. They said, they said a squeeze and a pinch, they might be kind of friendly. A crunch <laughs> is not. A crunch can break a bone. And that's what we're in the midst of, quietly. And that's what we're seeing with Moody's and Fitch and the warnings that we've got on banks. I love that. Yeah. So what they two, these two guys at Solomon said used used to be people would say credit squeeze or credit pinch, but mm -hmm. that was like too fun. It, it was too fun, and, so and that's crunch. what happened in 1966. You had banks pull back on lending while the U.S. government had been spending a lot of money. I don't see any parallels here. <laughs> that's uh, sarcasm for those of you who yeah. aren't watching. <laughs> and, and and what what did we see? We saw a massive pullback. So there's something to be said for quantitative tightening directly influencing that flow of liquidity or not into the system. It's something we see every Friday afternoon after the close in the Fed's H8 uh, document, you're seeing commercial and industrial lending negative. How much does the treasury issuance sort of mm. add to that liquidity problem? Well, so the first 300 billion or so were kind of benign. You saw money move out of the Fed's facility, overnight facility. People were like, oh, look at this. You know, I'm, I'm going to move it into, into treasury bills, money market funds. Um, where, where are we going going forward? I mean, if, if inflation is as sticky as the inflationists say it's going to be, then if I'm a money market fund, I'm going to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to go into bills. If, the, if I think the Fed's going to raise interest rates one more time in 2023, maybe it's September, maybe it's December, then I'll wait and I'll keep my money at the Fed, meaning they're not going to naturally absorb all of this treasury issuance, keeping that effect benign, and you end up having quantitative tightening join with treasury bill issuance and you're you're having a double pulling of liquidity out of the system all right i consider myself a pretty good reader the the nuns of blessed sacrament instilled that in me early age but i'll tell you what i am not reading the fed meeting minutes come out later today that's why we have people like danielle that's why we have people like well, danielle. i went to mount sacred heart so we're like okay in the same, yeah very good so what will you be looking for in these meeting minutes the softer the landing narrative the more they're going to stick with their higher for longer okay so i mean and look 
minutes can be massaged. Janet Yellen said so in 2008. She said minutes can be like any other tool in the toolbox. It's not like the minutes from a corporate board meeting or something like that. In the three weeks that are that, that come in between, the Fed can change what actually occurred inside that room. It's kind of like magic. So if they want to nod to retail sales being stronger than, than what was expected, then you can have a more hawkish tone in these minutes. And that's what I'm anticipating. What about the difference between Jay Powell's uh, standard line, you know, that we're going to keep rates higher for, I think last time he said for years. He did. Yeah. So at the same time, we get a dot plot, which I know is not a forecast from the Fed, but it is each individual member's essentially forecast. Yeah. Right. That showed uh, at least one full percentage point of rate cuts next year. How can he say we're going to keep rates at this level for years and everybody even, you know, assuming I'm assuming the voters are, mm-hmm. are saying, no, it's going to come yeah. down one percent. So it's kind of like you've ever heard one martini, two martini, three martinis floor. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he can he can withstand one or two dissents he, he, and, and maintain his power base. You start to get to a number like three and you start to say, gee, is there a mutiny on the FOMC? So um, we might see dissent next year from some of the more dovish contingency. He might want to hold out for longer. And, and that might mean that we see his first real dissent. And we have, I mean, we've seen Neil Kashkari, who used to be the most devilish mm-hmm. person on planet Earth, <laughs> become like, you know, we're not finished fighting inflation yet. So he's like very hawkish. So. And still, and still says we're not done. Exactly. Yeah. It was just a few days ago. Our good friends at Goldman Sachs, I guess on Sunday, put out a note saying that they expect a rate cut in the second quarter of next year. Was that just to sell books or do you think there's something to that? Talking a book at Goldman? <laughs> oh my gosh, I've never heard of such a thing. Look, Goldman Sachs has tremendous influence on the New York Fed. The New York Fed has a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee. This is a known known. Um, so it's, I think Goldman is definitely trying to control the narrative, and they've done a very good job of that in the past, of having a, you know, a very extra large influence on Fed thinking. But you know, Powell's not an academic. Mm. Powell was the one who brokered the Treasury scandal at Solomon Brothers with Warren Buffett in 1998 when he was really? assistant Treasury, the I secretary. Cool. Powell's not intimidated by bankers. Sorry. Interesting. One of the things um, that you were telling us about Powell around S&P, you know, 37, 3800, was that he wants to break the Fed put. The, yeah. mm-hmm. He wants to destroy the idea that the Fed is going to come to your rescue, uh, Mr. Market, every time the equity indexes fall. Now we're at 4,500. Mm-hmm. Um, has he, is it making it harder for him to succeed when the market just oh. continues to rally as they raise? No, it's making it easier for him. I mean, he's basically shut down the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. So that's one corner of securitization that's vaporized into thin air when in March of 2020, the entire commercial real estate industry was like, hold on, we need to bail out too. But he's taken, he, he's actually created price discovery in a market where none existed. There was a building that just sold for 67% off yep. of its prior appraisal in, in San Francisco a few days ago. Yep. So he's slowly killing off lines of speculation into the markets. I think the CLO market is next. So let the stock market be as high as it wants. It gives Powell license to continue depleting liquidity from the system and taking out some of the most speculative forms it's of credit him creation. Cover, essentially. Covers the word. Yeah. All right, so I mean this in the nicest way possible, Danielle, but you Uh-oh, are that, that's a data geek of the highest <laughs> magnitude. What data are you looking at that maybe we're not? 
So I follow two things very closely. The employee retention credit, it's advertised everywhere by Amanda Waters. Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio. Bill White Bloomberg hat, Radio. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, we, uh, it, it surpassed $30 billion for the first time in the month of July. So uh, on a 12-month run rate, it's pumping $400 billion into the economy. Very real money. That's about one and a half per percentage point of GDP growth on an annualized basis. We're seeing that manifest in much higher international travel. So it's going to oh. your kind of your top <laughs> quintile of earners, if you will. Uh, and that's being actively sold. So I'm paying very close attention to active fiscal stimulus. Okay. $400 billion yep. a year is not nothing. And dailyjobcuts.com. We've gone from Daily five business closings to nine from the summer months after the debt ceiling was resolved into August. The founder of the website said he's seeing a massive increase in companies just closing up shop in August saying, I don't see over the horizon the holiday season, uh, holiday shopping season saving me. So I'm paying really close attention to Main Street as well. Wow. All right. Very good. Danielle D. Martino. Always good booth. to watch the fiscal side, you know, Always because good. not a lot of uh, Fed geeks do. No, pay no. close enough attention to it's the fiscal highly side. Relevant. It's yeah. highly relevant. Danielle D. Martino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, which is always a treat. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, against my better judgment, I'm told we got to talk about Washington and politics and all that stuff that happens, the making of the sausage. And if we're going to do that, we're going to go to uh, our ace, and that is Nathan Dean. He's a senior policy analyst, U U.S. Latin America for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we Bloomberg Intelligence, we got people who just do everything, and we got a guy who is Mr. Washington, D.C., and that's Nathan Dean. He joined us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nathan, where I want to start is kind of with President Biden last week, seemingly getting a little tougher with China, but it seems like he kind of pulled some punches there. Talk to us about what Biden did via, I think, executive order last week with China and, and kind of what it means. Yeah, exactly. So President Biden put out an executive order essentially directing Treasury to limit or prohibit U.S. investments, so primarily private equity venture capital fund investment into China in certain sectors like quantum computing, AI, uh, artificial, I'm sorry, uh, uh, um, semiconductors. Now, this was a much narrower order than what had previously been anticipated. So I think the markets were actually kind of happy with that. Um, we don't think there's going to be that much of an impact here. But, you know, most of, I think if you look at the private equity firms today, the big ones, they're about 2% below in terms of uh, total assets with exposure to China. So this is really just a symbolism uh, uh, executive order. Now, the Treasury has to implement it, so things could change. Um, and with anything in the U.S.-China relations, you know, Biden can always pull the plug if, you know, it suits his will. You did have the, uh, at the end of last month, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. Uh-oh. That's a, is that really the name? The yep. House Select Committee on you the still Chinese. Do that? It's yep. lucky they threw the word communist in there, so yeah. we know how they feel about them, right? Um, that's a little bit loaded. They they allege that BlackRock is investing in Chinese companies acting against U.S. interests. Now I'm guessing this is a Republican-controlled committee. Um, obviously, those guys don't like Larry Fink. He's like the new George Soros um, for a lot on the right, but. We had a story by Silla Brush out yesterday that said BlackRock, MSCI, and other firms are bracing for tighter oversight. Um, is that is that talk on Capitol Hill going after these uh, big? 
big Wall Street uh, fund managers? Absolutely. I mean, and to your point, it's actually a bipartisan committee because being oh. seen tough on China is good politics no matter who you are. So, you know, when President Biden put out his order, we saw a statement from that committee from both parties essentially saying that this could have gone farther and they wished it had gone farther. Now, the question about BlackRock and the other firms is what is considered oversight and what is actually going to happen? Now, that committee cannot write legislation. They need the other committees to do that. And with a Republican House, a Democratic Senate, and a president who also has to stare Xi Jinping in the face at certain, uh, you know, events, you know, I'm not sure there's actually going to be actionable con uh, concern for those firms. So it's mostly headline risk. Just always keep in mind that when it comes to China, Congress loves to be tough, but it's the White House that actually pulls things back and moderates it. Well, the White House, I mean, Biden last week said uh, that the Communist Party are bad folks. Right. He said uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, he called that the debt and noose initiative. <laughs> well, there's a difference between calling somebody bad folks and actually creating a trade deal or, you know, sanctions and so forth that actually, uh, you know, changes what we here in New York City uh, are trading on. All right. You're down in D.C., better or worse. You're in the swamp. You're part of it, actually, quite frankly. Let's, let's be honest. What <laughs> oh, is man. the what is the feeling in D.C. about China, how worried should the world be about U.S. and China? What's the feeling in D.C.? So, you know, there was this thought of, you know, will we get into a war over Taiwan? And we have a national security analyst who has been writing about this on the terminal. The general thought on Washington is we're still years away. Okay. I mean, that this is not something that you can anticipate will happen in the next few years. Um, you know, and when it comes to how do you approach this in terms of a market perspective, you know, it's sort of something that like everything that we've seen before has happened in the past. I mean, there's really, you know, there's not been a lot of actions from China that haven't been actually done 10 years ago, 15 years ago, so forth. So, you know, we're just still in this wait and see mode. Uh, I think most, uh, if you talk to most Congress folks, they're just rather happy to blast China and get the good politics from it. <laughs> I'm pretty excited because uh, Ohio looks like it's going to be the next state to legalize marijuana. And this is something that we're following very closely, right? Of course. Uh, for recreational use, that would be the 24th state. Now, it's still federally illegal. And Nathan, you follow closely um, the, 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 Safe Banking Act, which I think is actually moving slowly enough that following it closely is no problem, right? <laughs> but the cool thing about Ohio is Sherrod Brown um, is our senator, uh, the senator from the great state of Ohio, and he's also um, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. So if it's legal in his home state, does he have then more, I guess, cover to push for uh, broader legalization federally? Yeah, I mean, if, Sher if Sherrod Brown wanted this thing done, he could have it done today. I mean, there's nothing that is prohibiting the Safe Banking Act other than Sherrod Brown and a couple of other senior senators on both parties. When it comes to the Safe Banking Act, the problem they have is, or the bill has, is timing and the procedures. Now, there's a lot of people hoping that the Safe Banking Act goes as part of the funding bill that is going to come up in September. Now, that's most likely going to end in a government shutdown, and Speaker McCarthy was talking about having a quick continuing resolution into December. That means the Safe Banking Act probably won't be assigned to that. Then you get into December. There's only eight days where Congress is meeting per month, October, November, December, what? and then we're in election season. So. I just, I'm not sure the Safe Banking Act actually has a vehicle to get to passage unless Sherrod Brown steps up and says, I want this done today. And I have not seen anything that says that he's, you know, he's been a lot of, he's been flirting a lot of, yeah, well, I like this, but also this and so forth. 
And there's a whole issue right now on uh, Senator Jack Reed has been trying to negotiate with the Republicans on, and they haven't made any headway on that. Hmm. What are you focusing on down there in D.C., legislation-wise or otherwise, that Matt and I are totally ignorant of? Well, the shutdown, for one. I mean, just yep. so- <laughs> Yeah, that's big. <laughs> well, it, the, the, the shutdown is actually, uh, we, you know, we dust off our note every two years when this comes out. <laughs> and when it comes to the shutdown, markets get scared within the first two days and then once they realize that the economic impact of a short-term shutdown isn't all that great, markets actually go up. If you look at the 30-day shutdown that happened under the President Trump administration, the markets actually were pretty much fine with it. And if you're invested in the contractors, well, most contractors, at least the big ones, have 18-month, two-year, two-and-a-half-year contracts. So the only people that are harmed are the contractors that work in Washington, D.C., and those of us who can't take our kids to the zoo. See? Yeah. I mean, with Nathan Dean, you can go from China to the U.S. government shutdown to weed. All to the zoo. Way. To the zoo. All, all in one conversation. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us in studios, Doug Baker. He's a portfolio manager, head of preferred securities at Nuveen. Doug, I'm an issuer. Why would I consider issuing preferred stock? Sell me on it. It, it depends what geography you're talking about. If you're talking about the United States, most of your issuance is from the, the bank and the insurance sector. Um, those two sectors, banks in particular, issue preferreds primarily to meet capital requirements. Okay. Insurance companies, capital requirements, but more importantly, they use preferreds to help manage their ratings. So if I'm a, an investor, do I care if a stock is preferred or not when I buy it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because th th there, there are several components to, to the capital stack. And, and as a preferred investor, you're actually senior to the common investor. So that, that's first off. So compared to the common shareholder, you're senior. Um, it, but the, the, the uh, similarity with common stock is oftentimes the payments on a preferred are considered dividends. So for individuals, you get that beneficial tax treatment in a lot of instances. So, so you're you're kind of moving up the capital stack. You're a little so you're safer in the event of a bust, which you, hopefully oh, doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, you are. Arguably, you are. A on paper, you yeah. are. The reality is, it, it just depends on the situation. Are most preferreds are they are they investment grade? Well, most of the issuers are investment most of the issuers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's how it works. If you looked at the issuers. Um, on average, you're going to find that issuers are, are around a single A rated institution. However, the preferreds on average are triple B rated. And it's because they're subordinate in the capital stack. The rating agencies, because of that subordination, will knock the ratings down typically four to five notches 
versus the senior rating of that same issuer. So you have exposure to investment grade rated companies. However, the securities may not necessarily reflect that um, through their ratings. All right. So we had the little mini bank crisis. Yeah. The big banks, well, everybody's going to pay the price with some, I guess, higher credit, uh, I guess, higher, more, more, more restrictions. How does that impact the preferred market and their use of, uh, you know, the bank's use of the preferred market? So it's, it's going to be, in our opinion, a lot like um, 2007, 8, 9, where a horrible, a horrible situation, right? And, and earlier this year, not as bad, but still pretty traumatic. But looking forward, it's going to create a great opportunity. Um, we're going to see the regulatory environment change, which is going to benefit the credit investor, which includes the preferred investor. Okay. And one of the things that we're seeing now is a big build in capital, or likely a big build in common equity capital going forward. So it's going to be at the expense of the common shareholder. It's going to dilute the return on equity, but it's going to enhance the credit profile for the credit investor, which includes the preferred investor. So what do you like? What do we like? Yeah. We like the big banks. We think that there are selective opportunities even in the regional bank space. We know that that's kind of, you know, I, I, some people think that the regional banks just across the board are a risky, uh, risky area of our market. But if you actually do the work, you do the objective analysis, things like commercial real estate, while there are risks, a lot of these headlines that we had earlier this year, you apply some analysis, you do some stress testing on it, indeed a risk but more from an earnings perspective, right? So um, we also like some of, the, um, some of the spaces outside of our largest sectors, banks and insurance, like aircraft lessors. So you have aircraft leasing companies that are benefiting from this tremendous boom in air travel, and they're the ones that are financing the airplanes. And so you, you do have some opportunities and spaces outside of banks and insurance companies to play the preferred market. Um, but at the end of the day, most of your exposure and preferreds is going to be financial services related. All right. So when I if if I buy a preferred stock, do I get a fixed rate, a floating rate? How does that all work? It depends what you buy. Okay. And that that's what that's where I think active management can really help out because there are preferreds out there that will just pay the same fixed rate coupon over the entire life of the security, and if that's a perpetual security, a lot of investors don't realize they're taking on a lot of duration risk or interest rate sensitivity risk with that. But there's also a large population of securities that. They may start out paying a fixed rate coupon, but down the road, that coupon can adjust. And, and not only does that allow you to benefit from a rising rate environment, but it also helps you control that interest rate risk, which is really, I think, the primary risk of those fixed rate structures. All right. So what's the risk to the preferred market here? I mean, I guess I got concentration risk with the you financials. Do. Yeah. So that's the first one that we mentioned. And then the second one we were just touching on too, yep. interest rate risk. Okay. Um, now, in, in our opinion, we think that, that the, the interest rate risk is, is probably the one that we can manage the best. Uh, truly, though, when it comes to financial service exposure, there's only so much we feel you can diversify away from that. So we do... Uh, oftentimes, when we're having these, these discussions with investors and they like preferreds, they want to add preferreds, one of the things that we ask them to do is, hey, check the rest of your client's portfolio, see how much other financial service exposure is there already, because you don't want to have them take an unintended bet on a sector unless they mean to do so. How did you first get into this? Was it, were you doing your CFA and you're like, hey, I like this section? Ah, well, <laughs> well, he went to the, here we go, University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, which I love the GSB moniker. They've now received a gajillion dollars from Mr. Booth. Yes. So it's a Booth School of Business. I right, get it. Right. But I'm a GSB uh, uh, guy. There's not a bum. I've done like a dozen 
Chicago NBA guys. There's not a bum in the. But they're all lot. they're all math people. Yeah, well, they're, yeah. they're geeky that way. The math. You know, even our Lisa Abramowitz, <laughs> who is super smart, she's from undergraduate Chicago. So they're all good. So anyway, go ahead. But 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 prefers. Did you pick this or were you at Nuveen and they were like somebody's got to do preferred, man? It's you. Uh, I hate to say it, but it's the latter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so when I first came to Nuveen, I was actually a derivatives guy. GSB, yep. right? Yep. Would you? Sure. And, and I don't tell many people this, but I was a derivative sales guy at Lehman Brothers. Okay. So that's, that doesn't come up very often anymore. You know, you don't throw that's that That's awesome. Out so yeah. if I'm a banker, with that. if I'm yeah. a banker and I'm doing a new issue for Wells Fargo, you're like one of my first calls, right? You're a big uh, buyer in the marketplace. I would hope. I would hope we're up there. Yeah. So we're we're typically having the conversations with syndicate desks yep. in advance of a deal coming. So they're whining, dining you. They're the guy. You're well, the guy that they need to get to. Put yeah, you, put, whining put, put and dining's kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Yeah. We, <laughs> we don't get that. See, that's why. But, I got but what out we do is game. we give them the feedback. We're going to be one of the largest, typically, players in in a book or in a deal for someone like that. Um, you know, so, so our larger competitors are going to get the phone call too. But the nice thing about that is we get to help drive the terms of the deal in favor of our investors. So, so yeah, we're typically the ones that will get, you know, the phone calls before the deal really comes to market to get a. You know, a temperature check of what we're looking for. So when Paul was See. on the street, it was all, and I'm sure when you started as well, you were flying everywhere twice a week. You were living out of a hotel half the time, <laughs> um, constantly face-to-face meetings. And now, is it completely changed? It's actually going back to that. It's oh, going it is. Back. Yeah. Good. So we're doing. Nice. I mean, I, I think we're the the, the virtual, you know, kind of um, remote meetings are. That's going to be still a big component of it. But yeah, we, I think feet on the ground and I think getting involved with folks face to face in a room. It, look, there's just better communication that way. And, and it also builds a level of trust that, hey, you know, it's easy for me to say on the phone, like, yeah, we're going to have interest at this type of level. But to do that in person, I think there's just a different connection there. And, and I think having that level of trust with, you know, our partners on the syndicate side with our investors is, is truly important. So that FaceTime, that in-person travel has really picked up. I would say over the past year or so. How many new issues do you guys at Nuveen buy, like you, for your preferred fund? Like There haven't been many lately. And this, no? is, one, this is one of the technicals to our market that's been incredibly supportive valuations, and it's, it's going to stay this way. We've had more preferreds redeemed this year than new issue can keep up with. Really? So, yeah. Okay. And, and, and part of it is that, you know, as the economy slows, our outlook is banks aren't going to need as much capital because their balance sheet shrinks, Right. Not as many um, people want loans, and if they're not making loans, all the size of their balance sheet shrinks, and their capital is measured as a percent of their balance sheet. Yeah. So, so we're seeing more redemptions than we're seeing new issuance, but when new issuance comes, use of proceeds is almost to refinance or to call an existing preferred. And it gets snapped up because people are looking for the preferreds. There's no supply. They're looking to reinvest their cash. And luckily for them, though, in this interest rate environment, the structures that we're seeing are very attractive. We're talking mid-7% type coupons with adjustable rate, you know, a component down the road after the first call date. Um, You know, we'd be a little bit more concerned if we were in a low interest rate environment and and folks didn't have this attractive opportunity. We do think that the preferreds are coming to market today are going to be a rare vintage because of these higher coupons, these attractive structures. So, so more often than not, we're participating in the new deals that we do see. All right. Doug Baker, he is our go-to preferred guy, right? He's our go-to preferred guy. Yeah. Portfolio Manager, Head of Preferred Securities uh, at Nuveen. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
get right to our next guest, Caroline Fredrickson, distinguished visiting professor at Georgetown Law. Uh, Caroline, thanks so much for joining us. We'd love to start as it relates to former President Trump and his legal challenges. Why maybe just give us a sense of kind of where his greatest exposure is with these four uh, issues that he's facing from your perspective? Well, I mean, they're actually there are four um, prosecutions, but there are a lot more than four issues. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, it looks I mean, I guess I would I uh, would start by talking about which are the most consequential. Um, uh, we could look at both the cases that are brought um, in D.C., the federal case um, focusing on January 6th um, and the Georgia case is really being central to um uh, the concern that we have about uh, President Trump uh, allegedly trying to uh, undermine our very democratic system. Um, the other two cases, albeit important, don't have the same kind of um, real existential uh, issues for um, for the United States of America as a continuing to exist as a democracy. Um, now, in terms of what the you know sort of uh, uh, the the ultimate. Uh, greatest danger is for Donald Trump. I mean, we'll still have to see how this will unfold because we haven't seen um, either of the prosecutors lay out their case. I think there there are a couple different um, uh, theories here. And one is that um, the approach taken um, by um, the the Department of Justice, um, which has been not to name the the so far unindicted co-conspirators, um, but to really move um, uh, in a different, in a different and more focused way, um, is one strategy um, to try and really focus the attention on Donald Trump and perhaps behind the scenes to try and negotiate with those who haven't been named yet in the federal lawsuit, who include some of the same people who were actually named uh, in the uh, Georgia state uh, prosecution, the Fulton County prosecutor. Um, in that case, you know, you have um, 19 defendants. Um, and uh, 41 charges. Um, and um, I think they're taking a very different strategy, which is very narrative, which is telling a story um, and working on um, uh, the potential of the, t- the defendants there turning on each other, some of them taking plea deals um, and so forth. So they're both very consequential for the president. It's really hard to say okay. that they have both significant um prison time for him if he is prosecuted. I want to ask, um, Professor, about something I saw in the Times over the weekend that I think a lot of people probably read, uh, bringing up the possibility that according to the original meeting of the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump is ineligible to hold government office. And there was a paper written by a couple of uh, a couple of, I guess, attorneys that are um, or were associated with the Federalist Society. So this is coming from a fairly conservative group, right, uh, in which they argue that because uh, he essentially engaged in insurrection, he is barred from holding office due to this amendment that was put in place after the Civil War. Does that hold any water, do right. you think? I think it's a very strong argument. And first of all, I'd say they're actually law professors. One of them, Will Bode, is um, at uh, the University of Chicago. It's very exactly, and Michael Stokes Paulson from the University of St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. And um, they're very conservative, associated with the Federalist Society, as you said, but um, also originalists. And I think um, in the sense that they, that they went back and they looked through um, a lot of the uh, documentation around the, around the debates, around the amendments um, uh, adoption, 
Um, and it was clear they were not just focused on, um, on those who'd been guilty of treason during the um, uh, the Civil War, the Confederates, um, but um, was meant to be prospective um, and keep people who've taken an oath of office to the United States from um, being eligible to serve again in such um, um, uh, positions of trust. Um, there has been one successful um, effort so far to um, put some, keep somebody off the ballot, and that was brought by a group called Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington against uh, somebody who participated in January 6th insurrection, um, and they kept him um, from um, being able to um, uh, to get elected. So I think it's a very strong argument, um, uh, and I think it's going to we're going to see how that will play out as election officials um, take action um, in right. different parts of the country. Caroline, what's your sense of the timeline here in, with these four cases? When will the first one, I guess? I guess I, I guess what's the timeline as, as you understand it? Well, it's, it's very fluid right now. I mean, I think the um, special prosecutor um, uh, is trying to move forward um, as expeditiously as possible. Um, and it looks like they're going to try and get that trial started before the end of the year. I mean, these things are, you know, uh, can keep changing. Um, the Mar-a-Lago documents case looks like it's going to start um, really underway um, in spring. Um, uh, the Fulton County um, prosecution in Georgia, I think that's, um, you know, they have a, a, an interesting schedule of speedy trial rule. Um, that means that any one of those defendants can um, demand speedy trial, which um, can really accelerate the pace of this, um, that prosecution, meaning that it could even be starting um, or, or, you know, mid, mid fall, you know, October or November. Um, and, right. uh, and those cases could be divided because they could, because some of the defendants yep. might commit, uh, well, uh, agree to a plea or otherwise get yep. severed. All right. We'll have to, uh, obviously fluid situation, as you mentioned, we'll stay on top of it. Thank you very much for your time. Caroline Fredrickson, distinguished visiting professor at Georgetown Law, trying to give us a little bit more clarity as this uh, legal issues of the former president uh, continue. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's talk about the uh, the housing market, the residential real estate market. U.S. mortgage rate climbs to 7.16%, matching the highest since 2001. That gets your attention, particularly- That's if you have great credit. Uh, yeah. And that's the gold standard mortgage rate, because if you look at bank rate, we're already up over seven and a half. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we need to figure out what's happening out there and what it means for this market. Lisa Sturt event, uh, she joins us. She's the chief economist at Bright MLS. Lisa, we had some housing uh, data come out today. Housing starts uh, pretty strong. I guess the housing industries, the home builders are trying to meet the demand out there. But what's going on in the residential real estate market today? How would you characterize it? Yeah, it's such a strange market, housing market, isn't it? It's um, housing has really confounded expectations in so many ways. Uh, you point to the home builder data this morning, new housing starts are up from a year ago, up from last month. We're seeing that uh, home builders are really responding not only to the demand in the housing market, which has stayed surprisingly resilient despite those higher mortgage rates, 
but they're really responding to the fact that uh, inventory is really at uh, near record lows. And there really is so little for prospective home buyers to choose from. Home builders are ramping up uh, the amount of inventory that's accounted for by new home construction is at its highest levels um, really in the last couple of decades. Um, and it's been a really strong housing market. We may be, though, prepared to see some changes in the market as we head into fall. So what uh, what do you think the catalyst for that will be? Because um, yeah. I, I don't know what's going to move us out of this stalemate that we're kind of in right now. Uh, owners who have low mortgages don't want to sell and buyers can't afford the high mortgages or the prices. Right. Right. So we, you know, we sort of expected back a year ago when the Fed started raising rates and mortgage rates were rising, that we would see a real strong pullback in demand. Maybe home prices would fall. But in fact, aside from a, a slowdown late last year, we've seen buyers back in the market in record numbers uh, in the spring, um, primarily because there's just such strong demand for home ownership. A lot of folks have record levels of equity in their homes that they're able to roll into a home purchase in essence sort of buying down that higher rate. But as you point out, the real reason why home prices have remained firm so far is inventory has been locked down as uh, many homeowners are in those sort of golden handcuffs of, of lower rates. But I think we're at a point now where there's just a lot of fatigue in the housing market and rates surpassing seven or even seven and a half percent could be what send us to a much slower market in terms of transaction level here this fall. So a lot of folks are wondering, like myself, uh, when mortgage rates are going to decline. And, and it, is there a level that once we get there that I'll maybe free up some activity here? Is it 5%? Is it 6%? Is it 4%? Is there an, a rate where you think it would kind of thaw out this market? Sure, yeah. Right. It's not going to be 3%, right? It's not going to be back to where we were during the pandemic. Um, I don't think it has to come down uh, even to 4 or 5% to help free up some sellers who may be uh, waiting to move but feeling that financial pinch. You know, one thing that we're tracking really closely is the fact that the spread between the yield on the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year fixed rate mortgage still remains quite wide. So even though mortgage rates um, will remain relatively elevated here in the, in the latter half of 2023, if we do expect, and, and I think we do expect that gap between treasury yields and rates to begin to narrow, and we could see rates come down to below 6% next year, which I think is what will be enough to bring more sellers from the sidelines. What's an historical, uh, what's a rule of thumb in terms of that spread? Where, where is it typically, or has it been over say the last 20 years? Yeah, we're typically around maybe 1.82 percentage points, and we're now up at three percentage points. Ah, so so historically, we should see mortgage rates about six, right? And we're looking at a little bit more than seven. That's right. And so if you imagine sort of as we move through the rest of the year that we could, we should expect rates to come down, maybe settling around six and a half percent by the end of the year and continue to come down further as we head into next year. All right. So I guess I'm refinancing, I guess, with a five handle. So what, all right, that's what about, um, yeah, Paul, top ticked the mortgage market uh, what what but he got an arm so he's ready to he's ready to move in and pounce when they rates come back down what about um new supply coming on the market so we know that there is uh there are very little transactions in terms of previously owned homes are builders out there putting up new supply like crazy so they can get them into the hands of home buyers who are are willing to either pay cash or go with a seven percent mortgage 
Yeah, you know, there's been uh, a long period of time during which home builders had a really tough time with supply chain issues, difficulty getting materials and labor. And now over the last few months, we've really seen home builders ramp up construction uh, because there's just simply no other inventory out there. And they are having to do things to entice buyers uh, in though. We're seeing more uh, uh, builder financing. We're seeing- um, Builder financing at lower rates, right, Lisa? That's right, that's right. I'm sorry, builders offering financing at lower rates to, to help bring more buyers in. What we're not seeing is builders dropping prices of new construction yet. And, and maybe they won't have to as we head through the rest of the year, but we are seeing um, you know, some sort of uh, give backs in terms of upgrades and other things. Uh, but right now, there are a lot of home buyers who are on the lots of new houses and they didn't expect to be, but that's where they are because that's what's available for sale. I mean, why would you drop the price? You put up a bunch of McMansions in you know, uh, yeah. com Connecticut commutable area, and then you can, if you say, hey, we'll give you a 4.99% mortgage, people are like, wow, I'll pay whatever <laughs> you want. Right, and it definitely is region specific, right? We have some parts of, uh, of the country where we're not seeing as much home building. Here in the Washington area, for example, we're still seeing uh, home prices of existing homes rising even as demand has slowed. And that's simply because we're not seeing a lot of new construction that's been coming online. So when the home builders are out there building, and again, uh, building permits, um, housing starts up 3.9% uh, uh, month on month, um, much better than it forecast here this morning. What are they building? Are they building those McMansions or are they building what the market really needs, which are starter homes? Well, the market needs starter homes for sure, but it has been a long time since we've seen new construction really be the main supplier of starter homes. But what we are seeing is a range of new construction activity in that middle market, as well as that luxury market, which then allows the starter homes in the existing stock to um, to be vacated where folks are able to move up. I mean, it's, it's part of a whole housing ladder, right? But because of the cost of materials, the cost of labor, the cost of local regulation uh, for home builders, it's really financially challenging for a builder to build at, at very low home prices. So we're really seeing sort of mid-market and luxury construction by and large. What about multifamily? Multi, yeah, the rental market has been um, certainly uh, going like gangbusters in many markets. In fact, we've seen uh, that rents are beginning to come down year over year on a national basis. Rents are down in many markets across the U.S. Um, this is all um, happening uh, despite the fact that mortgage rates are higher. Um, we're seeing just more new rental construction coming online, which is giving renters more options. So if we're looking for some sort of uh, bright side in the housing market, people who are in the rental market are finding more more options and are finding rent stabilizing or coming down. Hey, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate getting your thoughts here. Uh, Lisa Sturdevant, Chief Economist for Bright MLS. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. 
Visit bloomberglive.com/sbs2024 to learn more.